welcome to the Agency Podcast. Eugene here in Toronto. And Candy here in Chicago. Hey, Candy, how's your week? Uh, it's been okay. I've been busy. I had a couple of shifts at work. I've gone out. I had went and saw some live music, and I saw some friends I hadn't seen in a long time. Um, I don't know if you remember, right when the pandemic started, we had Zoom. I guess we had Zoom probably for our podcast, right? And I had the account where you can have like 20 people on it. And so a couple of women that we know from when I used to work at Old Town School of Folk Music, that was our first cocktail party. We had a couple of cocktail parties early in the pandemic on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time I've seen all of them, any of them since that time in March, 2020 or April oh, okay. 2020. So pretty crazy. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Dana's husband, Eric, um, is a great musician. And um, he may come on the podcast, and so may Dana. Let me just see if I got a message from Dana. She couldn't come on today, she said. Um, and she wants to know if we tape on specific days. And she could e either do next Monday or maybe Tuesday. And she's going to tell us about the Chicago Parks. Just a quick blurb about what's going on in the Chicago Parks and how people can find out about it. All right. That sounds excellent. Yeah. And, I and I'm sure that we can find a time yes. in which we could record the segment that works for you. Great. Great. Hi, Dana. Hi, Eric, and hi, Nancy and Mark, if you happen to be on here, because I met those two. And um, we had just had a great evening, and um, I got you a copy of Mark's first novel. And it's on my coffee table, and I'll mail it to you. It's called Uploaded. It's a little bit of a science fiction, apparently. Excellent. I got a feature copy so we could read it and have Mark on the podcast. Perfect. Yeah. Um, we're going to try and, uh, you know, rejuvenate our energy here, because sometimes... <laughs> feels like I know every week for the last two years we said how can we talk so much <laughs> we've actually recorded over we've published over 150 episodes oh my I'm god I'm not sure exactly what number we're at right but, uh, but it's a lot and we've managed to do it without a break I don't think we've missed a single week in going on three years now we have not we have not because and the fives and tens of, of people <laughs> in our audience <laughs> depend Man. on us they demand, they demand that cultural perspective and cutting edge analysis. That's it. <laughs> hey, we've got mail this week. I know. I'm pretty darn excited. Yeah. We've got, we got at least two emails and we have a message on Facebook. Yes. So go, well, go a, fr it. a friend of the podcast, Adam Andia, uh, yeah. sent us a, a video, which we'll put later on onto our, uh, our Facebook uh, agency podcast group. Um, and it's, it's about a guy who makes homemade violins. He calls them violins, but they don't exactly have the shape of violins. They're kind of boxy. Right. And he gets hold of a, a reverb box from, I don't know, some other instrument and installs it inside his homemade violin and wires it up. And it sounds like he's playing the violin inside of a cathedral or something right. it's it's very weird it's very interesting doesn't sound as good as a violin but <laughs> hey i'm gonna just but, see if i can uh, play a little bit of it now okay Let's see if it works or not hi i'm dave Hillowitz. so today we're going to answer the age-old question what happened but there is a challenge oh my god he talks strings on it this oh point. my god I, i'm sorry i thought it'd be a lot more music you got to go quite a way towards the end to get the music i see that do you know what that reminds me of is the freaking cooking recipes online 
where you just want the ingredients. You're in the grocery store shopping. Oh, yeah. And you get all these long intros. Oh, my God. And I know that it's really interesting. And I know if you're following cooking blogs and learning and, and all that, it's um, it must be a lot of fun. But I'm like, oh, please, Jesus, just let me get to the recipe. Um, you know, just leaping ahead there. This is doing that. You know, I've, I've often thought I would... I would be really good at running a cooking course for college kids. Oh, you know, how to learn <laughs> how to survive by cooking enough things to eat reasonably healthy that <laughs> taste good, that are super easy. Eugene, that's such a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's a whole new career. It's a whole new career. I kind of wish that we still learned how to cook in school. Kids should learn how to make soup in school. I don't have and any qualifications for that other than likes to cook. Do. Yes. Well, I think you just need to have a place to cook and, and a way to get, get those. What about doing cooking for college students cookbook? People don't look at cookbooks anymore, do they? I don't know. I really don't do. know. I mean, I do, but I'm weird. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if I can find this music. So you, cool. you too can you can get that sound if you install a reverb box inside a homemade violin right you know what it reminds me of is an accordion in a little bit uh, instead of an accordion an accordion fiddle <laughs> well in a way that sure. breathing sound i guess it's a drone i think it's it, the reverb box has lots of little springs yeah and it's that uh, the the moving of the springs i think yeah so we also got an email from uh from our friend vox the email is called, this is not a security alert. <laughs> Just in case we didn't open it. Hi, agents. Enjoyed your latest podcast. With regard government sponsorship, I would agree it would be beneficial in developing Go players, artists, athletes, musicians, scientists, and pretty much any human endeavor. Having the time to put into your craft without having to also deal with making a living would have to be beneficial. As for a sense of tension being helpful for the creative process, that sense would still exist in that presumably future sponsorship would depend on the progress being made. So that could well be a source of anxiety. <laughs> well, especially when there has to be someone to judge the progress being made. Yes. He continues, well, Go can be made more popular in American society. I believe it has a ceiling. That ceiling has to do with the same things that makes chess a fringe activity that is never shown on television and its top players never get endorsements or commercials. Popularizing it would be much more difficult than something which relies upon an emotional response. With Go, you have to understand the game to know what's going on. With something like a song, you don't have to know what key it's being played in or its time signature. You either like it or you don't. Yeah. Go requires much more of the observer and the investment of time and brain cells is greater than most are willing to invest. I think that's true. Yeah. As it were, we have become a nation of Nietzschean supermen needing instant gratification. And he adds in brackets, I always thought his theory of the Superman was just a cover up for premature ejaculators. <laughs> but what do I know? <laughs> They could have been skateboarders, Candy's closing line. 
I realize it was set in the context of the go-playing fellows in the coming of age movie, but it's possible applications are almost endless. It almost was the subject matter of this email, but the harshness of only receiving security alerts made me choose what I did. Yes. Well, oh, thank you, Vox. Always great to hear from you. Very good. And uh, thanks for a great title and everything. Okay, now let's, let's talk about um, Superman, Nietzsche's Superman. It's from Thus Spake Zarathustra, and it means beyond man, over man, um, superior humans. So that is going to be problematic right there. And people did take advantage of Nietzsche's philosophy to try and uh, assume that we could have superhumans. I remember there was like, I think it was Susan Anton was in a really um, old movie where they had, a, I think the premise was the Russians were biologically creating um, athletes somehow. So there's, I think there's this fear that if you pay artists or you provide an income for artists or athletes, it's going to be corrupt and the government's going to try and get, you know, be political with it or something. There's there's instances where that wouldn't happen, but I was trying to think what would be the negative, you know? And well, I'm the, just thinking- The, the capitalist view is that it would lead to mediocrity. Yes, yes. And, you know, of course that's not true because we- that's like saying if you're a crafter and you like crochet, you'll never get better at crochet because it's your hobby. Bullshit. You'll get better because we like to get better at things and get more comfortable and more fluid and transcendent. Um, we just love it when we get that hand-to-eye coordination going. We <laughs> it's do. It's a very rewarding experience. Um, what else did he say there? Uh, I thought it was, oh, you know what's funny? Is I believe... The Jeopardy talking about that what keeps somebody watching, um, you know, like a go game and that you have to have a lot of knowledge about it. One thing I was thinking was, uh, you know, the players aren't necessarily playing go thinking about us either. Whereas poker, why would we enjoy poker? I, you know, we might not know how to play or we might be good or bad. But, you know, the poker players got very dramatic uh, once they got on TV. Remember? Well, yeah, but it it has to be just about the most boring thing to watch on on television that's what i'm thinking ne that's next thinking. to like a snooker championship yes i agree so those are other things where it's really hard to get kind of excited about because they just kind of go along at least and in tennis the players grunt <laughs> you know what so i was going to say about jeopardy is maya the, the new host i don't know whether the production has done this on purpose but i find it's so suspenseful right now. Obviously, you get attached to a player. Is she uh, the new permanent host? Uh, she is one of them. And they're not claiming whether or not Ken Jennings is going to be a permanent host. He's hosting Jeopardy. And now hosting Jeopardy. But they say, and the host of Jeopardy, Maya. Okay, I so I don't know. I think they both want to have freedom to have other projects. Uh -huh. I mean, look at Alex Trebek, day in, day out. That was his, his Can job. you imagine? At a certain point, he must have thought, I hate this goddamn game. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to ask another question or right. another answer. <laughs> right, but I don't think he did. Also, they don't do it every day. They'll do it in, you know, day, you know they'll play 20 games, don't they all? I think they do jam all together. Yeah, same as Wheel of Fortune. Somebody told me they only work about a month a year or something. They just record them all at once. Right on or in, in maybe two week periods or something. So but the way she'll do it is somebody will go, they'll say the answer and she'll go, that is correct. 
but she doesn't answer. Alex Trebek was always, to my mind, very quick at yes, saying affirmative or no. She has this pause, and I don't know if they've created it to make the show more um, stressful. It is very stressful and exciting. I just start losing my shit waiting for her to say yes or no. And especially when you've got that reoccurring um, contestant that you start to get to attach to and you want to see them get more money and how amazing they are. Um, I don't know. I didn't watch yesterday's uh, Jeopardy yet. I've got it recorded. So I don't know if Ryan's going into 16 or 17 days, but I'm finding it so stressful. <laughs> wow. Yeah. In a, I haven't watched exciting, it in a while. In a very exciting way. So since how since that, that woman from Toronto was on, oh, that's yeah, the last time um, I watched it. Matteo Roach. Yes. Yeah, she was really amazing. She was fantastic. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I am curious. How would you make go? Again, I think it has to be in the school system uh, or in neighborhood community centers. How about those um, Toronto and Chicago parks? <laughs> Doing go classes, go championships. And it would have to receive the kind of attention that made it become trendy, like like Wayne Gretzky going to Los Angeles. Um, you know, hockey wasn't the same as as intense as it is now with uh, the, you know, we got Las Vegas and Mighty Ducks and everybody going crazy, making a very big show. And that kind of all came about from Los Angeles having Wayne Gretzky. So maybe something like, um, <sighs> You know what the those Bobby Fisher and, and those kind of competitions where you've got that charismatic personality. Um, well, in that, that case, you had, the whole, you had the whole Cold War going on. Yeah, right? they were they were um, they were fighting out the the Cold War over the board. Mm -hmm. I think when when Fisher was was playing Spassky. Right, and then in the Queen's Gambit, they suggested that kind of attitude was a cultural attitude where United States didn't have the cultural appreciation for something like chess and when she went to russia the main character she was she was like at home everybody well, understood that that playing slow and that kind of strategy you would take to chess what about the game pente which i know is so beneath you but pente, pente that's five in a row <laughs> yes but it is related to go i believe i think it came out well of it has black and white stones i i okay i don't know if it has anything else to do with I guess I assumed that somebody created it out of, they simplified Go so quickly mm -hmm. to make it. I think, no? I don't think they're okay. related. I don't oh, okay. think so. All right. I could be wrong. I've been yeah. wrong before. Well, <laughs> I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> yeah. It was a very thoughtful email though. Both of them were very interesting. Um, the the uh, fiddle with the reverb and, um, and thinking about how you make go competitive and so i think the thing with the subsidizing artists is i think that the other great thing is you forget about the the trade that right back to universal income everyone gets a basic income maybe whatever it is whatever the relative price should be is it 1500 is it 2000 and then from there obviously people who make two hundred thousand dollars they're going to be giving that that income back at the end of the year when they do their taxes they're not keeping it but you've you know got i'm surprised that in canada the idea of universal basic in income hasn't had more traction because, i am too because i would think that conservatives would jump on board with that idea because yes because if everybody has a basic income you don't need to have a welfare system in place 
So you don't right. have to have all those employees right. across the country figuring out this person gets a little bit of money, yeah. but no, this person doesn't get any money this month Correct. or whatever. So you don't need any of those, right. those people. And so those folks, well, they'll get their universal basic income like everybody else, but they'll have to go looking for other work. Yes. Uh, because I think if if everybody had the basic income, you don't need that that uh, method to supplement it. Correct, correct. And it's not enough money anyway. It isn't actually enough money. So um, that would solve that problem too, where you might have um, people really, really struggling. Yeah. But you know, I, I, I'm not, I'd like to be more hopeful, but we just had an election here I in know. Ontario and only 42% of the population bothered to haul their ass out to vote. And yes. and of those, most of them just voted for the guy who was already in there doing plenty of damage. Yes. Yes, I know. So I'm pretty Terrible. disappointed uh, with, <laughs> with the citizenry, my fellow yes. citizens. That's for sure. Yes. And, you know, <clears throat> and, and uh, obviously here in the last two or three weeks, um, and you're going to have that at any in in the election. All of a sudden, you get that polarizing language. You get that arguing. That's you. They get an idea and dig in instead of going. Okay, maybe we can't solve this. How do we go beyond it? I think. Every, and we've had it right now. Something like ten mass shootings this weekend. You, we were talking last week when you said you were worried mm. about thing. Ten, sixty-two people injured, seventeen dead in the United States from mass shootings last weekend. Ten that's mass crazy. shootings. It's so crazy. And um, then you get all the polarizing language. I think both, whoever you are, you you should go out and you could either go to the library and track down a play called The Local Stigmatic, but you can also see Al Pacino produced a movie version or go to the library or get a, a copy. Um, it's in the Ivory Tower by John Fowles. It's called Poor Coco. I would just love to know what anybody thought of those stories. Poor Coco. Um, and I probably have talked about it here before. I don't know if I talked about the story, Eugene. Um, the story is um, a, a fellow in England. He's an academic. He's a scholar. And he's going to write his biggest book, his, his masterpiece, right? So his okay. friends lend him a house in the countryside. Did I tell you this story already? No, I don't think so. They lend him a house. Uh, yeah, so I can say, I can reduce the story. So if it, it's hard to find, maybe nobody can find it. So he goes to live in the countryside. And he's got all his papers, all his research, all his books. And he's going to hunker down, you know, have a quaint, quiet life away from the city and just write. He's going Sounds to write. That's like a good his, idea. It is. Write his masterpiece. So he goes to the town and he gets food and he buys his groceries and he's, you know, got the dining room table set up with all his research. And, you know, a couple of weeks goes by and he's really enjoying it. And he wakes up in the middle of the night and there's a bandit in the house you know, with a mask or whatever. And the bandit doesn't know anyone's there. He's kind of taken aback because he's borrowed this house from friends who are not there. So this robber has come in and uh, they confront each other and the robber ties him up and they stay awake all night talking. And the writer, he says, why would you do this? You're so intelligent from things I can find out about you. You're just a very intelligent guy. You're, you could do anything. You could fit into society. You could work at a job. You could become a business person. And they talk about how they grew up and how this, this um, young robber grew up and what his life was about. And he basically begs for him to, you know, leave him and not hurt him. And the guy said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to 
go now. I've robbed you or whatever. And I'll, I'll leave now. And he leaves them. And he eventually screams or gets help or he didn't go to the corner store for a while. So someone found him after a few days. Okay. He just was so unbearably comfortable tied up in his chair. And when they rescue him and untie him, the kid hasn't taken anything. He didn't touch anything, but he burned every one of his research papers and his notes. Ooh. So what does that mean? This guy, the narrator of the story, believes that if he had just talked and listened instead of being elite, that this kid wouldn't have done it. But this kid saw him as being somebody who thought he was better than other people. Ah. And that was his crime. It's just such a powerful story. And I think Republicans, Democrats, liberals, NDP, everyone could learn something from that because we get, we dig in any political argument or philosophicals, we dig in so deep and um, we become kind of um, unreasonable. You know, with the gun thing, like I think I was saying last week, is everyone's like, well, we can't break the NRA. Well, okay then, accept that. You can't break the NRA. Let's go with that. Instead of complaining and saying we can't get through to the NRA, now what? find something else to do. If you can't do that, then, then you have to find a different solution to the problem. You have to find another way to, to deal with this because the NRA is not going to stop and they're not going to help if that's true. Just start acting like you believe it and do something different. You know, Chris Rock used to say, charge $5,000 for bullets. <laughs> something like that. His joke was like, charge and it, you know okay guns are easy to get make ammo impossible and then you're not up against the nra right hmm, it's just that's a bullet. Yeah, I, it was a great classic joke oh god it's going to be 20 years old and that's sad that we're still talking about this shit 20 years later you know but yeah he had a great ghost make ammo impossible well on that terrible topic so a few oh, weeks we got, ago yeah i was uh, just we were we we were watching a film. We watched uh, the unbearable. Oh yeah, the unbearable, the unbearable weight of massive talent. Is that it? Yes, that is it. Yes. Nicholas Cage. Uh, Nicholas Don't let Cage. me forget our and, Facebook message. Don't let me forget our Facebook message. Okay, we'll come back to the Facebook All right, message. Great. Uh, great. But we uh, we were watching this movie, and yeah. in it, two of the characters <laughs> talk about a movie which they think is the best thing since sliced bread. That's right. A movie called Paddington 2. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Paddington 2. I, knew I didn't even know there was one. a Paddington 1. I knew there was a 1. I might have seen it or fell asleep at Christmas watching it or something. So we vowed that we were going to go and see <laughs> somehow we would see Paddington 2 and, and we would talk about it and see if, if, uh, if, if Nick was leading us down the garden path or he was offering us up right. uh, morsels, nuggets. That's right. Because the first part is somehow they get arguing about movies and what a good movie is or something. And I think the bad guy, the, the drug dealer goes, come on, Paddington 2 is the greatest movie and Nick Cage hasn't seen it. That's right. But then and, he watches it. Uh, yeah. And they're very moved. They're deeply moved. And then at the end of the movie, it comes up again because his kids get reunited. They go, oh, dad. He goes, yeah, let's watch a movie. And he wants to watch something like, you know, uh, one of his own films, Leaving Las Vegas or something. He wants to watch some artsy, like the, the Seventh Seal. And they're like, Dad, can't we watch one of our movies? And he goes, okay, what one? And they're like, Paddington 2. So it's a good callback. And then you see them all crying at the end watching it. <laughs> so 
I have a couple of things before we start talking about the movies. Yeah. A couple of things I want to say. Okay. Um, one is this is not the first time I've watched the sequel to a, a movie without watching the original. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I did it not too long ago when I watched the sequel to Trains of Busan, the oh, yeah. uh, Korean uh, zombie yeah. movie. Yeah. And you know, the, the sequel was better than the original, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I love that movie. Yeah. It was really fabulous. Um, and also, it's the second uh, apparently children's movie that I've watched this week. <laughs> the other one, the other one being Bob's Burgers. But we'll oh, get to Bob's God. Burgers a little bit later. All right, we will. Well, you know, I do watch a fair bit of kids movies and i'm surprised you don't watch more seeing as you love a coming of age story so much well, so um, so here's my question all right was it a perfect movie i i think it was a perfect movie i i think it was too i just don't yes. think you could do anything else the end. no no and you know what it made me feel like the great british baking show yes of course <laughs> it made you feel fabulous because I that's so what good. paddington bear does that's he what makes he does people feel good Exactly. He, he looks so for the cute. good in all of us. And he's so cute. I mean, weren't the, what wasn't he adorable with his little schleppy hat? I loved his hat. Oh my god, I know Steg wants that hat. Of course. <laughs> and and the words of wisdom, Aunt Lucy said. And Aunt Lucy said things like, if you look for the good in people, you'll find it. Yes. And if you're kind and polite, the world will be right. Yes. Now, Eugene, I had quite the surprise, though, and I'm sure you did, too. I went to watch a kid's movie. I did not know I was going to be watching an abolitionist movie. An abolitionist movie? For, against prisons. I well, yes, I guess away. it was. Sure yes, it was. It, in the most delightful way. So what happens is this adventure happens. Oh, the special effects and the art direction are gorgeous. Yes, the and whole it, movie is drop dead beautiful. It's drop dead beautiful, and it's so cute. And, and it's sort of so, it it's, some of it is kind of animation. Yes, some of it is like I don't know a guy in a bear suit. I don't know. No, uh, apparently it was all CGI. All CGI. Okay. Yeah. For him, for him, the dog was a combination of CGI oh, and real dog. dog. Oh, the bear oh. riding the dog. It was the best. <laughs> I loved it. I know. I know. Okay, so the, the story is he's got a wonderful home. He lives in England. Um, he lives in London and he loves marmalade. Who doesn't love marmalade? And, and he um, gives people marmalade sandwiches. He does. And he even does haircuts and patches their hair with marmalade. He'll, he finds any reason to use marmalade. And so he finds out that he wants to get his aunt a gift. And he finds a pop-up book of London. And it's an absolutely adorable book. And he thinks, oh, my aunt in Patagonia or Peru would love this. Is she in Peru? And she will love this because she always wanted to go to England. So she'll see it. And then they go into the book. And you travel in this pop-up book for about five minutes. Oh, yeah. To all the great sites in London. Oh, it's, God, a, it's an it's educational so London travel. Absolutely adorable. With beautiful then, animation. Yeah. And then there's a terrible heist. Someone steals, steals this book. Because he's working his ass off. He gets a job in a barber shop. He gets a job so anywhere. So he can buy Aunt Lucy the book for her 100th birthday. That's right. And so it gets stolen and he gets arrested because they think he stole the book. That's right. And, and part of the nuance that's going on is that there's a certain kind of prejudice against him because he's different. Mm -hmm. Because he's a bear. That's right. So right? And so some species. people think that bears, well, he's got to be guilty because he's a bear. 
Yeah, so there's that underlying theory going on that kids can take on about being different. Absolutely. That's well said, Eugene. And so there's that whole xenophobia kind of thing being played out. So we're suspicious because he's something different. And of course, this is an interspecies story. So one of my favorite. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. (laughs) And so then he gets put in prison. Well, almost immediately, he's put on laundry duty, and somehow a red sock gets put into the laundry. Oh, yes, and he, <laughs> he dyes all the prison clothing pink. Pink, because he's washing all those black and white classic um, prison clothes, and they all turn out pink. And everybody's mad at him at first until they go, well, wait a second, it's rather bright and colorful. And we find out, as his aunt might have taught us, that basically, if you look for the good in people, it's there. Because all of these prison guys are, are good people. Pretty much, they're just in there from doing something, you know, maybe whatever mistake they went down the wrong alley in life. They That's are right. They, they have a chance later in the film to prove that they're good people. Right. But it's interesting because, so first of all, they have drab clothing. That's a statement by itself. Paddington cheers it up. Then we find out that prisons do not provide delicious or even nutritional food. The it's truth. not even nutritional. And Paddington goes, forget about it, because he loves marmalade. That's right. So he can he, give everybody marmalade sandwiches. Yeah, love he it. makes friends with the chef, who is played by the wonderful Brendan Gleeson, who we love. Um, and um, he goes into a very different role for him. He's not usually like that. And um, he's the grouchy chef. And they make marmalade sandwiches for everybody. And everyone is celebrated. Then they decide, oh, well, they decide they can almost do like cooking. Because there's something that a lot of people might not realize. But a lot of convicts are very good kitchen workers. That's right. And so some of them have recipes. They have recipes and they have kitchen skills. Because often that's the only place that will hire a con, an ex-con. So, you know, they kind of create this whole new culture. And it's a very much better quality of life and they're really okay people who maybe shouldn't be in prison and that prison is just ridiculously oppressive Um, so of course paddington breaks out yeah they help him two of the two or three of the guys help him break out which is pretty exciting for something that's done by cgi the physical comedy in this in this film is fantastic the cleaning windows scene oh it's so brilliant Oh, that was beautiful. It was so funny. I was laughing out loud. Yes. (laughs) And then speaking of comedy. The the barbershop sequence. Also, I was laughing out loud. (laughs) Well, you know, when we uh, rented the movie, it says a book gets stolen and hilarity ensues. (laughs) (laughs) And we kept going and hilarity ensues. Um, There's also a performance to die for in this film. And God bless Hugh Grant. Oh, yeah. Because he is absolutely delightful. He's a wonder. He's the villain. He's the villain. And and I have something to say that goes right back to a measurable um, weight of of massive talent. So why did they recommend this movie? Why is this so much fun in Nick Cage's movie, The Paddington? There's an inside joke inside the inside joke. Because Hugh Grant is an actor who is down on his luck, a has-been. And um, he... Um, is extremely vain and narcissistic, uh, not unlike Nick Cage's younger self. And right. um, and he plays it up. Did you know that Hugh Grant improvises a lot of his own lines? 
And they are fantastic. I was laughing at him so much. He camps it right up. So the directors, when they wrote this hideous actor, they went, well, there's no one else I can think of except Hugh Grant. But how do we ask him to play this? It's, <laughs> it's written for him. And so they, I guess they wrote a kind of uncomfortable letter and said, sorry, but would you do this? We think we'd be, you'd be perfect for the role. And he, he not only did it, but he provided the photos of him as a younger person. Oh, wow. And the director makes a joke. He's not sure whether he brought them out of storage or pulled them off the walls. <laughs> Just so you know that this character is vain. When yeah. you when you visit his apartment, you see like a, a dresser with dozens of photos of him. <laughs> <laughs> Which Hugh Grant provided. <laughs> How convenient. Um Hugh Grant is really one of the most naturally funniest people I've ever seen in interviews. If you ever see him on a talk show and you just want to pick up your life, watch it. He's great on the actor's studio. Um, his episode was fantastic. He's just, he's just got that fast, intelligent wit that, you know, is so miraculous. Anyway, he does a great uh, version of this. He is the bad guy and he is very bad, but he's not that bad. Even when he goes to prison, he lands up in prison they end the whole thing with a Stephen Sondheim musical Broadway dance routine still in their pink costumes in their pink clothes so this is so delightful and so beautiful it and I really felt like having I ran around the house looking for cookies even though I'm on a diet I can't have them I was like I must have something that I can have around here like a marmalade sandwich like a marmalade sandwich Which would have just hit the spot oh i would have hit the spot and i usually do have marmalade all the time so, so this movie is an adventure story for the kid and all of us yes absolutely and it's charming it's funny we recognize ourselves in it yes we recognize our society in it we recognize all the things that are wrong because yes. paddington bear sees through all that crap yes he does you know, he's, he's, are you going to watch the first Paddington? I might have to. <laughs> I might have to. I got to say it's it's perfect. It I had really such a good perfect. time watching this movie. I'm so happy you did. I know I was worried, really worried if we were going to be too cynical or old to enjoy it. But it was just so wonderful. <laughs> On the other hand. Oh, uh -oh. I, went, I went to see Bob's Burgers. I, I don't with, know why you with, did. with she, Because <laughs> Sheila and our friend Stephen wanted to go see Bob's okay. Burgers. All right. So, so I I thought, well, I missed the last movie I was supposed to go go right. to with them, okay. um, because uh, I had to be home for some reason, and um, and so I didn't want to miss this one. So even though it was Bob's Burgers, off we went. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess when you texted me you were going to see Bob's Burgers, I was like, well, do you watch the TV show? Like, no. I've never no. seen the TV show. Well, that's kind of like watching the sequel without seeing the first one. <laughs> yes. Well, I knew this turkey was an animated film. I knew that it was based on a TV show. I didn't know it was a musical. Somebody oh. ought to have told me it was a musical, uh -oh. okay? I didn't know it was a musical either. Oh, my God. It was, And it wasn't a good <laughs> musical. We're not talking Gene oh. Kelly here. Oh, no, We're talking so bad animation and a musical and an infantile script and... <laughs> And characters I just couldn't care less about compared to Paddington Bear and, oh. and everybody else, you know, oh. like in Paddington Bear, the guy who drives the garbage truck and gives him yes. the emergency drive yes. across town screaming out, it's a refuse emergency. 
I loved all those characters. I didn't love a single character in Bob's oh, Burgers. No, I don't even so remember sad. any of the names of the characters in Bob's right. Burgers. Oh dear. Yeah, it's not your, it's not for you. It's not your genre. It's not your thing. I mean, I would see Bob's Burgers, Burgers, but I probably wouldn't probably right now run to the theater. I'll watch it when it comes on TV or something. Yeah, I wouldn't go to the theater um, for it. Yeah. Um, so that's too bad. And if you that, watch it, if you watch it streaming, just yeah. keep that that little controller nearby. For you the might music. Need it. For the music. To no, to exit out. Oh, okay. Maybe some edibles. Would that help? <laughs> that would probably help. <laughs> you might need, but you might need you know, a good dose. I really, I like the TV show. I thought it was pretty funny. I like the TV show, so I thought, oh, that's going to be maybe sort of interesting. <sighs> yeah, except that it isn't. <clears throat> right. Right. Well, too bad. Okay, so I'm just looking here on my notes because I did have a lot of notes, but I think we covered that. I just want to see if there was something else. Yeah, Paddington 2. What a steal. And it just makes the uh, Nick Cage movie all the more, right? All the more yes. fun. They, I wonder how many rents they've gotten and how many people have gone to see it since. Oh, yes, movie. because it was recommended in the movie. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I'll bet you it did get a, a pile of people who said Paddington 2. What the heck's that? <laughs> exactly what we did. Apparently, um, Paddington Bear is a big deal in Britain. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a lovely story. And he's a cult figure. You're right. Enough for them to be making. So I did finish Ozark. So if Paddington Bear and Winnie the Pooh were in a cage match, yes. who would win? Of course, they wouldn't fight. They would have Ooh. tea. Oh, Winnie the Pooh! Yeah, they'd have tea and honey and chocolate <laughs> together <laughs> with their friends. Yeah, I think Paddington caught on over in North America too, but maybe not quite as big as in England. You know, I, I won't say too much, but I did finish Ozark. Oh, good for you. You're a, you're a better person than me. I will say that I'm very glad I finished it. It's not the ending I wanted. It's not the way I, it's not the outcome I wanted at all. I'm very unhappy about it. However, I guess they stuck to their guns. What I do want to say, um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it again, because you might give it a chance. I, I found it a rewarding, I, I know I found it a rewarding experience to watch the last season, even though it's ideologically, I'm completely opposed to it. Um, yet I'm not because they stuck to their guns about capitalism and, and winning and competition. So I will say that they stay true to, um, to how it was. Whereas, um, in Breaking Bad, it ended with Walter White definitely not being, um, you know, his family did leave him, his son left him. Same as Sopranos, the kids, I believe, went on to their own life. I don't see them as following um, like in, in uh, what's the um, Mad Men? I think, you know, the daughters, the kids in those programs with the intense, powerful patriarchy dads, they all kind of rebelled against them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this, this played out a little differently. Um, it reminded me of something. What's that? I thought maybe it was going to be Country Mouse versus City Mouse. I thought they might be saying that. But one thing I do think they're saying, the creator of the show said that um, the birds were like an invasive species. The, you know, the, the main couple from uh, Chicago. I see. Were like an invasive species because there is some line in the, uh, in one of the last episodes where they say that you just come here and, and you kind of, you're just using our land. They're using their resources, right? Whereas there is a, a 
a culture in Ozark. So I thought it was good that so he is that the culture of you don't come from here? Maybe, but I think that it also showed that maybe there's not so much a difference between city city greed and country greed. Um, they definitely wanted to get their own money. I was thinking about when I was in Clarksville, and I, I'm curious how you feel about this. Um, I was in Clarksville in a very artsy store, and they had paintings. I said, oh, wow, do people, you've got some art here. That's pretty cool. I bet people might come from Nashville to buy art. And they said, yeah, they do, but they want it to be cheaper than what they would pay in Nashville. And I had to think to my, I said, oh, and, and I said, so I, I would have thought so too, because you've got less cost. If it was, why should we charge less than what they would charge in Nashville? If the value of a painting is, you know, a thousand dollars, why should we sell it for 800 when they sell it for a thousand in Nashville? <laughs> I was very funny because I did think, well, you're paying less rent and you're paying less bills. Maybe it should be cheaper, but- But what does they, that have to do with anything? Exactly. Like, I, I can tell you, having spent most of my adult life thinking about paintings, <laughs> I I have no idea about value and pricing and art. It's just one just big freaking mystery to me. It is a mystery for sure. It doesn't make sense. I agree. Uh, but I just thought I could see the idea that, well, if you you were selling art, maybe it would be cheaper in a small town. But she made a great point. No, why? It's art. Why would it be cheaper just because we live in a small town? And I thought, you go, girl. She's right. Um, but again, that goes back to pricing of art and everything. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't understand how people price you know, art because it's insane. <laughs> I knew a guy years ago who was a business consultant and a very yeah. good one. Yeah. And he said to me one day, you know what your problem is, Eugene? And I said, what? What is my oh. problem? Wow. He said, he said, your problem is you don't charge enough for your paintings. You oh, need to wow. triple or quadruple the prices of your paintings if you want them to sell. And, and I said, why is that? Yeah. And he said, people like me who have plenty of money don't want to buy something that's inexpensive. They want to buy something that's the best. And the best means it's the most expensive. So mm -hmm. if you want me to buy your work, you're going to have to up the cost of that work considerably. So it's in my kind of ballpark. That and is so fascinating. It, that made me really sad. Yeah. It made me tremendously sad. But yeah. because um, it, he's probably right. I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, and, and I want to know, like this pricing thing in terms of art or how you compare art. Uh, if you're going to buy a cooler which I, I love coolers. I've been known to have like 10 coolers. But of course, right now, maybe the greatest cooler is the Yeti cooler. Um, and why is it great? Well, because they, what makes something great or what makes a great thermos or a great sweater? There's a hoodie out there, I forgot. I think it's called the American Hoodie Company. And it's supposed to be the quintessential best hoodie. And, um, you know, good fabric, cotton fabric, natural fabric, um, doesn't harm the environment. Is it dangerous or is it marketing with something well-made and it could always be returned and fixed? Um, I think it was L.L. Bean used to have a lifetime warranty on everything. And the problem was people would buy it at secondhand stores, take it back to L.L. Bean and get it replaced, oh, which see. shouldn't really be a, a problem. But I think you should make something that has a lifetime warranty on it. It should be able to last a lifetime and get fixed. So how, how is something worth a value if it's the best tent and it really, we could all try it. You could come from any income 
and and any bracket of life and and it's not what would be the value of the best tent I don't look well, at it in terms of the of the quality of the tent, though. Remember years ago when the National Gallery of Canada bought a painting by Barney Newman called Voice of oh, Fire? Oh, right. This is why it doesn't work with art. Sorry, I just yeah. want to qualify. I'm okay. not trying to talk, say that one artwork is better. I didn't mean it that way. I mean, how do we judge value? Okay. Right. So well, now we're for, going to Barney Newman. Yeah, which we yeah, talked for about. Me, for me, like the, the, the outrage was because oh, my three-year-old daughter could do this with her yes. hands tied behind her back, right? Yes, um, yes. And I had no objection to the painting. Painting's fine. Yeah, it was fine. What I had an objection to is for the millions of dollars they spent <laughs> on it, they could be supporting the work of hundreds, yes. hundreds of yes. active artists, yes. rather, you know, who, who maybe would appreciate selling the odd painting. And plus, they would end up with a really significant collection. If they spent that amount of money on all kinds of artwork. Yeah. And I think also let the people who are worried about um, impressing their friends with a Barney Newman or a Picasso, let them buy those ones for millions of dollars. But a museum, why not buy a thousand paintings for the same cost? It just makes sense. Better value. 500 paintings. Pardon? Better value. Yeah. Better value. for. I don't attach value to the content. Right. right, I attach, you know, uh, like how much money can a painting possibly be worth? It's just paint on canvas. It's just paint on canvas. I know I should be the one saying, oh yeah, it's, it could be worth a lot because I want to make lots of money selling painting. But that ship sailed, man. I just, I, I've made nothing selling painting. <laughs> well, I think that, yes, I think that, you know, I think definitely it's ridiculous that a painting is a million dollars. It's ridiculous, even more ridiculous that it's 120 million. We're not talking about art anymore. We're talking about some kind of crazy, insane status, narcissistic society. A thousand dollars, yeah. That's that's not a you know. If you really you really want to buy art, you can go and you know you can buy art a couple hundred dollars. If you like the art, you're gonna that's that's doable. A couple hundred dollars. Um, Maybe five to a thousand dollars. I, I it depends on the size. You're right, but this idea, you see, when you're buying something, you want the best. That's not about art. <laughs> That's about insecurity. That's about the yeah. ego being afraid of of being shoddy. Oh, I'm afraid of not having the best silverware, the best china, the best um, Ralph Lauren, or Versace. Um, and all of those things are fine. And having beautiful china is a really fun pleasure to eat off of beautiful dishes. I don't mean it moral. I don't mean it moralistically. It's just how we place value. I guess art is just going to be in a capitalist society. It's just too. It's just too crazy. It's it's like cocaine. It gets out of hand, and people want to you know right back to Ozarks. They're going to market that cocaine. They're going to market the heroin. And they're going to want to launder their money. And that's what art is very good for. When you're talking about a $100 million painting, you're talking about money laundering. It, art is the best way to make money hey, disappear. And if anyone out there wants to launder some money <laughs> by buying a bunch of paintings from my studio, right. please come on down. I, I, I also opened up the, um, and I'm sure there's some money launderers in Chicago. If you're listening, come just, you know, Send us an email. You don't have to say you're a money launderer. Just say you want to buy smart. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird. 
And then people don't want to get the art. We've said this over and over again because they're afraid of looking like a fool if they haven't had it historically correct. If they don't have historically correct artwork, they're afraid of putting art in their house that somebody would go, well, what's the value of that? You know, that's my kid could paint that right back to that story. Well, yeah, and there's still generations of people who have who have grown up convinced or having learned or having been taught that, um, you know, all art since the turn of the 19th to the 20th century has been a hoax. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I suppose they still have been that way. Yeah. And that goes back to that same kind of elitism with the poor Coco story of feeling like you're talking in a language that I don't understand. That's not accessible to me. It's not meaningful to me. It's above me. That your, your language and your aesthetics are elite. There's that too. I wanted to talk a little bit today about a novel I just read. Yes. Um, it's a novel called Silverview, and it's the final novel written by John Le Carré, the spy writer. Hmm. Uh, and I, I came across it while wandering through a bookstore one day, and, and I thought, well, how interesting. He's an author that got tremendously popular for a, a few works that he did in a particular time in his career, right. as is often the case with um, artists, writers, musicians. They'll become super popular for a certain period. And yeah. they'll, be in, they'll be in fashion. Um, but people don't often talk about sometimes what artists or writers or musicians did later. Mm. And, um, you know, John Le Carre had quite a lengthy career. He wrote many, many things. Um, this one was uh, left completed in uh, 2021. Uh, his, uh, his son, uh, I think, gave it a final edit and published it. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, it's different than many of, of Le Carre's novels. And that is, it's short. It's, it's maybe 200 pages. Mm -hmm. um, most of his novels are long and involved with lots of plotting detail that, that you have to understand in order to figure out what happens later on in, in mm. the book mm. and <clears throat> this book's not like that uh, but this book does have a lot of looking back which is kind of interesting for somebody at the tail end of his career uh, it's the story of a fellow named julian who is a stock trader who gives up stock trading to move to the seaside and open a bookstore mm. and well there he meets this this fellow named edward and it turns out that Edward is a spy and Edward's wife who Excellent. is dying is also a spy. Excellent. But they spied separately and Edward is up to no good. Mm. He's, he's sort of betraying the service and his country and his wife sends a letter in on her deathbed to the service, basically ratting out her husband. Wow. Uh, and so it's a book in which not a lot happens. You meet these characters and you find out about them. And 
then it kind of comes to a close. But the main character is just, he doesn't have a huge role in it. In fact, nobody has a huge role in it. It's all a, a look back at this fellow Edward's past, which informs much of what happens um, in the today of the novel. Uh, it's quite it's quite a lovely uh, novel. Like many of his works, it's muddy, it's gray. It's really beautifully written, you know, and it's a short mm. book, but it's difficult to describe in a few words. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's quite a strong piece of, of writing um, and a lovely novel, and I'm going to highly recommend it to our listeners. Wow. What, a, what an interesting place he was thinking about in, in writing at that time in his life. He's really very interesting. Although he's dealt with moles before and, and double agents, yes. but it sounds like a very um, more um, meditative style or something or a meditative setting. Maybe. Well, in that there's not so much plot stuff. I yeah. mean, yeah, things happen, but it's not a big, it's not really an involved plot. Right. I say. Right. It's really about, you know, the undoing of this particular character based on all the things that happened in his past. Right. Right. Very cool. Yeah, it was cool. Very, Very good. cool. It sounds really good. Um, so I, I made some reservations because um, I'm going to Quebec end of the month stag is going to be hanging out with you guys in toronto for a couple of days and i'll see you when i get back from quebec don't but, worry um, we'll look after him you i know you will he'll look after you too he'll, he'll be a lot of fun he said he's going to be calm too <laughs> all right yeah but um i, I party on 27th street that's right but we're going to a place called montebello quebec to get to some just a little scenery with um with my daughter's grandmother so i'm pretty looking forward to that um she's 90 and uh, so we, she said she wanted to go to a lake. And we said, well, hell, let's make that happen. <laughs> let's try to make that happen. So we've got a little adventure. And I, I, I booked a little place that looks really magical. It's like um, a mansion. And it looks like Montebello is a very unique area in Quebec, just outside of Montreal. Well, kind it's of got a great name. It. And yeah. if it's got a mansion, maybe the mansion will be haunted. Uh, it looks haunted. <laughs> it definitely looks haunted. Are you okay? I'm okay. We had a crash. We had technical challenges. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened either. I don't even know what we're talking about. Either do I. <laughs> <laughs> we better, what do we do? Let's give out the email. Okay, let's give out the email. I got to read something, but the, the, the agency.podcast at gmail.com. And please write us a message. You could also send us a message on Facebook, like our friend Terry did. Terry posted on our page. He said, since Agency Podcast examines movies, I thought I'd drop an idea. Might be interesting to take a look at what I call anti-Westerns, or what some call revisionist Westerns. Films that question the cowboy mythos, I'm thinking of the 
Holmesman, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, and Slow West, for example. Revisiting this subgenre seems urgent in light of the horrible outcomes of the Texas cowboy gun ethos. Just a thought. Well, Terry, I'm thrilled with that thought. That was such a great um, request because we always are asking, tell us what you want us to watch or talk about. Um, Have you seen those movies? Um, I've seen um, one of them. The Assassination? Yes. Yes, me too. I love that movie. Okay, so I just want to look at uh, revisionist or anti-Western. Wikipedia says a revisionist Western, also called the anti-Western, sometimes is a subgenre of the Western film, designated a post-classical variation of the traditional Western. The revisionist subverts the myth and romance of the traditional by means of character development and realism to present a less simplistic view of life in the Old West. And Old West is in quotes, of course. While the traditional Western always embodies a clear boundary between good and evil, the revisionist Western does not. And here they have some a list of Western films, anti-Western films. So I'll just read out a couple. The Great Train Robbery, The Road Agent, Law and Order, Outlaws of Sonora, Westward Ho, Jesse James, 1939. Oh, we're way back there. That's fascinating. A lot of Jesse James. Um, Blood on the Moon, The Man from Colorado. It's weird because I always think of um, revisionist Westerns as coming out of the 70s. And these are all like from the 30s and 40s, Yellow Sky. So let me get up to ones that we might know of. Oh, I shot Billy the Kid. That's a good one. Um, The Great Missouri Raid, Three Desperate Men. That's from the 60s. High Noon, 1952 with, what's her name? Grace Kelly's in that, right? But maybe what we should do is pick a couple of them and watch a couple of them and talk about, say, two films in in terms of... um, the uh the idea of the uh the revisionist western hey right. and i guess you know we did have an author on the podcast a while back dennis mccarthy uh, would you call his book the gospel according to billy the kid a revisionist western i absolutely would sure i think so and and i would call his brother's book blood meridian an ant, uh anti-western as well sure yeah um so yeah but i think we should try and walk, check out those films terry recommended there's two there um and then look at this list. Maybe I'll share this list on uh, our Facebook page and see if there's a couple others we want to try. Absolutely. You know, for, for a few dollars more is considered one. The, uh, the spaghetti Westerns are considered the good, the bad, and the ugly, of course. Ombre. So Clint, Clint Eastwood is someone, when I think of anti-Western, I think of him right away. And the one he did was almost an anti-Western of his own anti-Westerns, Unforgiven. He almost goes against his own right? Because sure. he has, he has much uh, more detailed female characters. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I love that movie. Yeah. Oh my God. We've both watched We've talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. That's another fun, fun one. Uh, 310 to Yuma, of course. And of course, Tombstone. I'm I think we Barry. talked about both 310 to Yuma's. Definitely. Oh, the and podcast. they include the power of the dog as an anti-Western. Hmm. Um, I know someone who said, now they're killing us with macrame <laughs> as a review about the power of the dog because there's <laughs> a gay murder. Oh, I so, see. Yeah, there's a homoeroticism and uh, braiding involved. All right, well, I think let's do that. Let's check out those other two movies we haven't seen. See if we can track them down. We're and, up for um, the challenge. Thank you, Yes, Terry. we are. And we want to show that when you ask us to check something out, we really do. 
That's right. And maybe we'll even have something rather intelligent to say about them. That's right. All right. But that's going to be another week. Another because day. for this week, we're done. We want to wish you all a good night, sweet dreams. Back at you next week. And no mass shootings, please. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.